as we transition our hearts to those preaching and the hearing of the scriptures. We hear from our Father in heaven this morning from his word. Let's go ahead and pray the Lord would prepare our hearts. Father, you are our Father, our Heavenly Father. We thank you that you have done that in our, because of your own initiative, not because of who we are. We are a wicked people. Um, we deserve your wrath, and yet you have had great and mercy and grace to us, and you have made us yours. Lord, it would have been enough to even just be reconciled, but you didn't have to have an intimacy, an intimate relationship with us along with that reconciliation, but You've also adopted us as your sons and daughters and brought us into the family, and we thank you and praise you for that. We thank you for the opportunity uh, to come to your word this morning and see you as you endorse the unique son, the only son, your beloved son. And so we pray, even as we come to your word this morning, that you would open our eyes to see him. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts to hear, to listen to your word, and to obey, and to live in light of it. We ask these things. We pray you bless this time in your name. Amen. Well, you remember the last few weeks I've been watching, th walking through Matthew, we've had this exile motif. You remember that idea of exile, that you're away from home, you're away from your your natural homeland, and, and the reason you may be out of your homeland, and it was for Israel, was because of your sin, that sin that produced, that produced uh, God's displeasure, that, that produced God's chastisement, that brought you out of uh, that land, out of home, and into uh, a foreign place. And really, we said that really all of humankind is, is in exile, exile away from Eden, away from God's presence, and away from that rest, and it's due because of our sin. But you think about this aspect of drawing near to God, really, the, if you think about uh, coming back, uh, the whole of the scriptures is leading us back to Eden, back to the presence of the Lord. But if you think about that, uh, it's not just uh, sin uh, that separates us in a sense, right? Like if you think about sin, you're thinking about, I've done something wrong. I've done something wrong. And that's true. That's true. But there's sort of a positive aspect of drawing near to God that we think about. And that positive aspect you could think of as uh, concrete righteousness. You see, when we think about righteousness, it's not just not doing what's wrong, but it's doing what is right. And what is right in the universe is that which conforms to God himself as the ultimate standard of right and wrong. You see, to draw near to God, you need to not only not have done wrong uh, or not be counted with wrong, but also you must be righteous. You must have righteousness. And you think about, well, what does that look like? What does is, what is, what is righteousness look like? Well, God has manifested that in a number of ways, and, but in particularly in his law and the different manifestations of the law, whether you're talking the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law, whether you're talking about his law that he's written on the conscience of every individual human being, that those laws give us an understanding of what does God require, what is in, in line with his eternal moral character. 
But when you look at the ten, say the Ten Commandments, uh, and you look at those commandments, many of them are saying, don't do this or don't do that. There are some that have a positive command, do do this or do do that. But even the negative ones, you can think of, well, that's telling me not to sin, but you think about the exact opposite of what you're not supposed to do, and that's righteousness. Uh, let me give you an example uh, from the Westminster Larger Catechism. Uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism is designed to teach in regard to many things, but it specifically addresses God's law and this issue of righteousness. And so even as we, uh, it looks at each of these commands and asks questions. So question 103 from the Westminster Largest Catechism says this, which is the first commandment? You probably know. First commandment is thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's a, that's a negative command. Don't do this. But then the very next question that the, the catechism asks is this, what are the duties required in the first commandment? So you see, he's not just saying, what does this prohibit? But he, it's going to, what does it enjoin us to do? What does righteousness look like? And it gives a list to help us understand what does the righteousness that God requires of his people? So listen to this. The duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God, and to worship and glorify him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing of him, believing him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in him, being zealous for him, calling upon him, giving all praise and thanks, and yielding all obedience and submission to him with the whole man being careful in all things to please him, and sorrowful when in anything he is offended, and walking humbly with him. See, godly men have thought about what is uh, not uh, having other gods before, and what does that say against, but not only that, but what does it enjoin us to do? And there are many things. Or you can think about another commandment. Let's take the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment is this, thou shalt not kill. Again, that's a negative command. Don't do this sin. Don't commit uh, murder. Don't kill. But then what, what does that command actually enjoin us to do by way of righteousness? And the catechism answers this. The duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and all and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thought and purposes, subduing all passions and avoiding all occasions, temptations and practices, which tend to be unjust, taking away the life of any by just defense thereof against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat, drink, physic, sleep, labor, and recreations by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous speeches and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient, bearing, and forgiving of injuries, and requiting good for evil, comforting and succoring the distressed, and protecting and defending the innocent." All of that is really what the sixth commandment, it's not just don't kill, but it is what do you do to promote life? And I quote the, each of those just as examples of this issue that when we draw near to God, it's not merely don't do sin, but what is the righteousness that he requires in order to draw near to him? And really, that connects with what we saw last week with John the Baptist baptism. You remember that baptism. We talked about it last week was, was a, ba a baptism for repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And we said that that language of repentance is, uh, is renouncing sin and self, uh, changing allegiance from sin and self to allegiance to God, to having him be our king and Lord over all of our lives. And, and that, uh, that's the idea of repentance. And that repentance is not only don't do these things. Yes, we confess our sins in that, that, that uh, umbrella form of repentance, but also and you remember this from last week, there is, there is good fruit from a truly repentant life. And so John's baptism, you remember this, signaled the need for cleansing and salvation through the waters of judgment to be part of God's priestly and kingly people. Not only not doing sin, but doing the righteousness that God required. You remember, we talked about that baptism, that imagery goes all the way back to the original creation where the, wa- the waters covered the whole earth. And then the new creation came up out of those waters, including a new uh, son of God, as it were, Adam, who was supposed to have rule and dominion and be a king and a priest. And we said that that motif was carried through even to the flood where the waters once again covered the earth. And then out of that came a sort of new creation and a sort of new Adam in the form of Noah who inherited the stipulations and the promises given to Adam. We said it happened again, even in the the Reed Sea crossing, when Israel came out of Egypt into the promised land, they passed through these waters of judgment and they came out as a a priestly and a kingly people, a nation as a whole to be the son of God. God called Israel his son in the Exodus to be that mediator king between himself and the nations of the world. And that helps us understand where we're going today. This issue of uh, we're entering these waters, yes, to confess sin, but also to display our need for righteousness. And the people are doing that under John's guidance and saying, yes, we need to come and have this second exodus from exile, but we need to not only confess our sin, but we need the righteousness that God requires. And the question is, where will that righteousness come from? And John hinted at it last week. He said, the one who comes after me will baptize with the Holy Spirit, which comes and reminds his listeners of the new covenant promise that all of God's people will be indwelled by the Holy Spirit one day, and the Holy Spirit will cause them to walk in God's laws, in God's righteousness, bearing good fruit. Which leads us right into this morning... The question is, where's this righteousness going to come from? Where is it happening? We're waiting for the coming one. Where is he who's going to, yes, we're identifying with this coming one in these waters, but where is he? Where is he going to come from? Well, that we now have that one step onto the scene in this chapter in Matthew. And Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, his, his aim for them in Jesus stepping onto the scene publicly as he is in this, this section, he's calling his audience to this, to follow Jesus, the servant king who fulfills all righteousness for the new creation. That's where Matthew is going in this section, and that's what we need this morning. That's what he called his audience to, and it's true of our own hearts. Whether we know Jesus for the first time or need to keep coming back and knowing him, it's the idea of following. Follow Jesus, the servant king who fulfills all righteousness for the new creation. Let's go ahead and look at the text. Two parts. Uh, Let's look first at verses 13 through 15, and you need to see this. 
Jesus fulfills all righteousness. Jesus fulfills all righteousness. Look at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. Now let's pause there for a second and think about the geography here, right? So you remember at the end of chapter 2, when Jesus is a baby, those sovereignly orchestrated movements of God, even showing that through this baby, when he, when he grows up, is going to lead his people into a second exodus, you remember where he ended up. He ended up in the north, in Galilee, in the city of Nazareth, and he said, uh, Matthew said that uh, it said this fulfilled the language that he'll be a Nazarene. Remember that that idea is of a righteous branch. The Messiah in the Old Testament is called a righteous branch, a Nazar, who will deliver his people. That righteous branch who will deliver his people. So Jesus is way up north. Where is John? Well, we said last week John is probably just north of the Dead Sea, right around where Israel crossed in the first conquest into the Promised Land near Jericho and, and those places. And that's symbolic, right? Because, because just like Israel crossed the Reed Sea to become God's uh, chosen and priestly people as a nation, they crossed the Jordan to reaffirm that in the conquest, saying that we are God's people, we're his kingly and priestly nation to do his bidding. And John is calling his audience, an apostate Israel by and large, to to show their need of that, that exodus, that conquest to come out. And Jesus comes down to where John is, way down south, to the Jordan, to John. What's his purpose? His purpose is to be baptized by him. So the, the, the baptism that John, we saw last week and what John is doing, Jesus specifically comes down from the north to participate in John's baptism the baptism that was part of the package deal of displaying repentance. Which leads to a question that you might have and that, uh, John, uh, that Matthew's readers would have. Well, why does Jesus need to be baptized by John? If, if John's baptism is a baptism for repentance and displaying repentance, why is that necessary? And, well, John has the same objection here. Look at verse 14. John would have prevented him. And the idea is he's trying to, he comes to John, and then John is kind of in this process of, he keeps trying to dissuade Jesus. No, 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 don't, don't do this. This isn't a good idea. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Now, the question here is, what, what, what baptism is John thinking of? Uh, does he know that Jesus is the Messiah yet? And you would think from this, maybe, maybe he does. Maybe he at least knows a little bit. John and Jesus are cousins. But the book, the Gospel of John actually indicates that John didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah until the baptism itself. So what's he saying here then? Seems like John is, recognizes and knows enough about Jesus' life to know he's way more righteous than I am. He's way more qualified to execute this baptism for me, I know, even though I'm calling others to repentance, I know I need to repent and I need Jesus to baptize me. But Jesus answered him, verse 15, let it be so now, for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Then John consented. Now, 
This is the first time Jesus speaks in the gospel. Did you know that? These are the very first words in the gospel of Matthew that Jesus speaks, which is significant. Let us be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, you remember, what, we, uh, what was John's baptism about? It was about um, that repentance, turning from sin and self to follow God, which bears fruit in keeping with repentance. That fruit we might characterize as righteousness. So it kind of makes sense why this phrase that um, would, would convince John. His baptism is all about uh, producing righteousness. And Jesus is claiming this, we're, what we're about to do in baptism is going to fulfill all righteousness, so we can kind of understand, at least at a surface level, why John consents. But what does this mean? What does this mean that uh, fulfilling all righteousness? Really, we must equate this with Jesus' purpose in coming to the baptism. Jesus is coming down to this baptism specifically, but he's saying here to John, the reason we need to do this together is to fulfill all righteousness. Now, let's think about this for a minute. First, the word fulfill. We've seen that word before, haven't we? We've seen that word fulfill before in these first early chapters of Matthew. And Matthew's been using the language of such and such took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, uh, and then he quotes a verse or something like that. Or even with the Nazarene example, right? Uh, thus, uh, this took place to fulfill uh, what was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. So we know that this is particular language that Matthew uses when he wants to point up the fact that somehow uh, Jesus is actualizing, filling up to the full some sort of Old Testament prediction or pattern. The idea of actualization, he's bringing something that was predicted either in pattern or in wording to bring to pass. But here what's interesting is there's not a prophecy, is there? Not directly. It's the object here is all righteousness. All righteousness. What is righteousness? And we've already kind of hinted at it this morning in our worship service and in some of our prayer prompts. Righteousness in Scripture, and with regard to Matthew's gospel as well, is conformity to God's standard. Righteousness is conformity to God's standard, but it's not like there's some standard outside of God that's always been there that God himself conforms to. No, God himself, as the eternal God, is that final standard of righteousness. So we could say it like this, Righteousness is conformity to God's standard with himself as that standard. Jesus himself will say in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom and his God's righteousness. He is the final standard of righteousness. So when you're putting these pieces together, Jesus is pointing up the fact that what they're going about to do in their baptism, in, in Jesus' baptism by John, is going to somehow actualize righteousness. But notice this little adjective, all. All righteousness. Now that's comprehensive, isn't it? Not only is what uh, John and Jesus are going to do is right, it is that, but it's so much more than that. What Jesus is saying is what they're about to do is is part of the process of actualizing all righteousness. And really, this was predicted in the Old Testament, even in the book of, say, Isaiah, 
where God's people are sinful. They're sinful, and not only are they sinful, but they need not only to renounce what is wrong, but they also need a positive, true righteousness, and only then can they dwell with God. Not only then can they dwell in a new creation in which righteousness dwells with God. So what Jesus is saying here, I believe, is that what John and him are about to do is part of actualizing an all-encompassing conformity to God's standard that was predicted in the Old Testament. How in the world can a baptism do that? And we'll see how. Uh, It's not fully explained here. It's not. uh, John is convinced. I mean, John's baptism is all about this, right? He wants to see fruits um, being born in, uh, in conformity to repentance. In other words, he wants to see righteousness, concrete righteousness in Israel. And now Jesus is claiming that what is going to happen in the baptism is going to actualize that. It's not explained yet. It will be as we go through the rest of this passage and really in the rest of Matthew. But it convinces John, and so he consents. The main thing to take away with, Jesus is purposing to come to this baptism for John's baptism for the purpose of fulfilling all righteousness. So Jesus fulfills all righteousness. That's what we see in verses 13 through 15. That's his purpose. We still don't know what, is that, what does that all look like. Well, we're going to see that in this next part in the passage in verses 16 through 17, which is this. Jesus is the servant king of the new creation. Jesus is the servant king of of the new creation. Essentially, everything that just happened in the previous verses were all dialogue. We haven't, they haven't baptized yet, right? But then we know the purpose in it, that Jesus is seeking to fulfill all righteousness, to actualize it. But now we see the results, the baptism itself, and the results of that, which fills out our understanding of what Jesus was talking about. So let's pick it up in verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized... Immediately, he went up from the water. That's the baptism right there. He was, John dunked him under the water, and then he comes up from the water, right? That's that, that language. It seems like he's talking about coming up, breaching from the water, and then we start to see some results, immediate results. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. The heavens were opened to him. This is This is the language often, even in the Old Testament, of of, uh, God uh, giving some sort of vision, which it seems like it's some sort of vision here. It's real. But the idea is is that heaven is communicating with earth, right? There's this rift uh, between uh, uh, that's open, so to speak, or a tunnel or a portal between heaven and earth, and heaven is communicating with earth. This even reminds us of what John's message was. You remember John's message Uh, last week. Repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. Heaven is about to invade earth. And we see at least here, the heavens are opened and the heavens are communicating to earth. And what happens? And what happens, what the communication is, comes in two forms. There's one form of communication that's visual. And then there's another form of communication that's audible, right? Uh, God ends up speaking, so let's see first the, the, um, the, the visual means of communication. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. 
that imagery, just first and foremost, the idea of the descent of the Spirit and resting on someone reminds those who are watching, it seems like, yes, this is for Jesus and John, but it seems like there's an audience around. But seeing God's Spirit come and rest on a man should remind the hearers of Isaiah. Remember our friend Isaiah. We spent a good amount of time in Isaiah already in going through Matthew, and it's no surprise that we should go back there. So go ahead and turn over to uh, to Isaiah. In Isaiah 11... And we've actually seen this passage once before. I'll point it out to you. But the imagery of the Spirit coming and resting on an individual, we see that connection here in Isaiah. Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Remember, we saw this imagery before, that the idea that the nation of Israel and even the Davidic line, it's like a chopped down tree. It's got a stump. It's just a stump sitting there. It looks like it's done. It's over. Uh, And we remember in Isaiah the setting as uh, the actions of Israel and its kings have really cast the die. They're going into exile. They're going into exile, and they're going to be like a chopped off tree. But Isaiah not only says there's going to be judgment, there's a promise for the future. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse in a branch. That's our word Natesare that we looked at a couple weeks ago. From his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh, and his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And so what Isaiah is saying here is that the one who's going to be the ultimate Davidic king, he's going to be identified by the Spirit resting on that one. And that individual is going to be supremely righteous. He will be supremely righteous. But not only that, it's not only that he's going to be supremely righteous, he's going to be supremely righteous for his people. To flip over a few pages to Isaiah 61, and you remember that Isaiah 40 through 66 is really looking to a people who have gone into exile, into Babylon, and they're going to be drawn back out by the ultimate Davidic king who was just identified in Isaiah 11. And we get similar language to what we just saw in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me. So now we've got this one, the individual, the ultimate Davidic king, the servant that's in Isaiah 40 through 66, speaking of himself, and he's saying this, the spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor. 
and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And so you see this one who has the spirit on him. And not only is he supremely righteous, but he is also going to work in Israel's life and heart to make them be called oaks of righteousness. And you see even there at the, in verse 4, this language of uh, rebuilding from the ruin of exile, right? This is the one who's going to lead his people out of exile into the promised land and really into the new creation itself. So we can start to see what is being portrayed in Jesus' baptism. The Spirit is marking out that this is the one who was spoken of by Isaiah, this is the ultimate Davidic king who is righteous and who will lead his people out into righteousness. But there's a little bit, there's more, right? Uh, we've seen this, that there's so much imagery packed into Matthew. There's more. You ever heard of a time when there was water and, uh, and, and then there's this bird flying around and it comes to rest on something? Well, you should be thinking of the flood, shouldn't you? Right? You should be thinking of the flood, and you should even be thinking of the original creation, because remember what Genesis 1, 1 through 2 says, that, that there are waters over the surface of the earth, and then there's the spirit hovering over the surface of waters, hovering like a bird. Why is that? Well, it's because of this imagery of new creation, and we've already talked about that last week, that that what comes up out of the waters and has uh, the mark of the dove, so to speak, on it, where does the dove land? It lands on the new creation, right? Or in this case, the one who's identified with bringing about the new creation. And so this helps us understand why Jesus is coming to this baptism at all. Right? While the people's baptism, so the people who have been going during growing John's baptism, their baptism signaled their need for cleansing to be God's priestly and kingly people of new creation. That's been the thread through the scriptures all along. But for Jesus going through this baptism, Jesus, for him, it's endorsement. For the people, it's expressing their need but for Jesus, it's endorsement. Jesus is endorsed as the already clean priest and king who will lead his people into the new creation. Jesus is the one empowered by the Spirit to this end, as Isaiah speaks of. And it's not just that he has the Spirit. He's going to be the one to give the Spirit to his people who are identified with him in the waters of baptism. So not only can, uh, to, to lead them into righteousness, that new covenant promise that the Spirit would come and indwell God's people to walk in ways of righteousness. So that's all packed in to that visual imagery in verse 16. But we not only have heaven communicating to earth via visual imagery, but we also have heaven communicating with earth, the Father communicating to earth 
in verse 17. So let's go ahead and look at that. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. There's at least two scripture texts that this is referring to, probably three, probably three. First, the language, this is my son. We've already talked about that language, haven't we? The idea of sonship in the Old Testament started with Adam. Adam was called the son of God in the sense that he was under God in an intimate relationship, but had a responsibility as king and priest to further God's demands in the creation. And then Noah took up that responsibility. And then Israel, as a corporate reality, took up that responsibility. And then within Israel, specifically the Davidic son, the one who inherits the promises of the Davidic covenant, inherits the promise of sonship. Go ahead and turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, to see one of the sources of these words that the father is speaking to the son. The Psalter begins with two themes, the law of God in Psalm 1 and then the Son of God in Psalm 2, and those themes pervade the rest of the book of Psalms. But we pick up in Psalm 2, and I'm going to read the whole Psalm because I want you to see the imagery that's being pulled on when the Father is communicating to Jesus at his baptism. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And really what this is speaking to, it's speaking about the ultimate Davidic king. You remember God's promise to David that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, not only of Israel, but of the whole earth. And that's what's being spoken of in Psalm 2. And that's what's alluded to back in Matthew 3. This is my son. This is the ultimate Davidic king. And you remember that the ultimate Davidic king has what we call solidarity with his people. In, in a person, he embodies his people, his, king, his people, namely Israel, first and foremost, and then by extension, others. But just as the people were coming to baptism to the Jordan, for John's baptism... And saying, yes, we are a people, we are a part of Israel, that we need this righteousness. He, the, 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 now we have the king who identifies with that people, being himself identified by the father. This is my son. But he doesn't just say my son, like Psalm 2 said. It said he says, this is my 
beloved son, my beloved son. Now, what's interesting about that is that there's, not, there's only maybe one or two times in the whole of the Old Testament where you have that sort of phrasing linked together. And it would take you back, it would take you back to Genesis 22. Again, I'm just trying to unpack all the imagery that, that is being packed into this phrase by the Father, God the Father, to God the Son. Genesis 22. And if you remember Genesis 22, this is where Abraham is called by God to sacrifice Isaac. He's called by God to sacrifice Isaac. Let's just go ahead and pick it up briefly. We won't read the whole chapter, but just Genesis 22, 1 and 2. And I want you to see this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So even that language, we see a similar language in Matthew 3 at the baptism of Jesus, the father speaking to the son and to those around him, this is my son, my beloved son. And he's alluding back to this episode with Abraham and Isaac. Why? Well, what happened with Abraham and Isaac? Abraham was a father who gave up his son, the son of promise, the one through whom all the promises are supposed to go through, and he was going to sacrifice him but only through God's intervention at the last moment, he said, no, stop. I know you fear me. Here's uh, an alternative sacrifice, which starts to hint at the reality that is going to be made even more explicit in the next phrase, that the father, the eternal father, is sending his son, he's endorsing his son, but to do so for the purpose of sacrifice. Like I said, that's, that's more fully explained even in the next phrase that's mentioned in Matthew, Matthew 3. It says this, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. With whom I am well pleased. Literally, what's interesting in the original is it's with whom I was well pleased whom I was well pleased. This, this expression of the Father's delight in the Son is something that, it's not just at this moment of baptism, but it's had, it's had uh, at least all of hum, Jesus' human life, and uh, it could even be referring to the Father's pleasure in the Son from all eternity, right? But the Father is pleased with this Son. But it's not just that he's saying, I'm pleased with him. It's also alluding to another passage in Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah 42. And remember what I said earlier, Isaiah 40 through 66, it's written to a people in exile, and we have this this figure, the servant, who's going to be the ultimate Davidic king, who's going to lead his people out of exile. We already read Isaiah 61 earlier, but Isaiah 42, we're speaking about a similar reality. Isaiah 42, verse 1 says this. Listen for the same language. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. There's our language. With whom I am well pleased. 
But we keep reading, I have put my spirit upon him, which again ties us back to what is going on in Matthew 3. He will bring forth justice, another way, a synonym for righteousness to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am Yahweh. So now the, the, the uh, um, Yahweh is speaking to the servant. And he says this, I am Yahweh. I've called you, the servant, in righteousness I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Similar language even to what we read in Isaiah 41. Or Isaiah 61. So what is happening? We pull all this together. What is happening at the baptism? We could say it like this. By this baptism, the Father identifies Jesus as his ultimate son, but not just the son, the servant. And you remember that servant in Isaiah What did the servant do in Isaiah 53? The servant lays down his life as a sacrifice for his people. Isaiah 53, 11, tying this together with righteousness. And we get what the servant himself, the servant's put on this mission by God, and it culminates, or there's a, uh, in, in a high point in, Isaiah 52, uh, 13 through 53, 12, but I want to draw your attention to 53, 11. It says this, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. See, the Father is not only saying that this is my beloved son, He's also saying, this is the servant in whom I am well pleased. This is the one I've, that Isaiah talked about. This is the one who has been sent on this mission to bring his people out of exile, but not only to bring them out of exile, to deal with the issue that brought them into exile to begin with, which is their sin and their lack of righteousness. To do so, the servant king has to come and substitute for his people. So by this baptism, the father identifies Jesus as his ultimate son, his ultimate priest and king, who is empowered by his spirit in his mission to lead his people into the new creation. He will do this as the righteous one. Jesus will do this as the righteous one, suffering for his people to account them righteous and to lead them to righteous action through the giving of the spirit. The father is marking out his son. This is the one, this is the mission of the son. 
He's coming not only to rescue his people, but how is he going to rescue them? Through giving them righteousness, through fulfilling all righteousness, through being righteous himself, through substituting for his people in their place so that they can be accounted righteous, and through giving them the Spirit so that they can actually live out in concrete, real-life human righteousness by the power of that Spirit. Jesus comes to fulfill all righteousness. And that's why Matthew's aim in this is, as Jesus is portrayed in this way, what's he calling his audience to? He's calling his audience to follow Jesus, the servant king who fulfills all righteousness for that new creation. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, first... We start with where we started the sermon, right? We need to always recognize our need for righteousness. It's not just that I have done uh, wickedly, that's enough, but I I also lack righteousness. I'm not good. I don't do good. I don't have a natural inclination to do good. So we need to recognize our need. We need to be honest with ourselves that we are not righteous people and we need righteousness and rescue Peter talks about in the new creation, it's the new creation is where righteousness dwells. There will be no wickedness. So to be there, I need righteousness. And the only person, the only way is Jesus, this ultimate Davidic king, this new David, this new Moses, the only one who can actualize, who can fulfill all righteousness for you. How do, you, how do you come to him? You come to him in trust and f- uh, turning back to that language of repentance from turning from uh, allegiance to sin and self to Christ. Saying, I'm yours. I have nothing. There is no righteousness in me. There is no uh, way I could be righteous enough, but I know if I'm identified with you, if I'm in you, Lord Jesus, that your righteousness, your lived in flesh, human righteousness is counted to me and my failures, my wickedness, my, uh, uh, my sinful record was nailed to you with the cross. Which is the call to a, not only trust in Jesus alone, but then to identify with him. That's what's going on in baptism. That's what baptism is all about, really, is identifying with Jesus. As we think about Christian baptism, as we've had a baptism a few weeks ago, what are you doing in the waters of baptism? You are publicly, uh, you, you are publicly declaring your allegiance to Jesus. You are identifying with Jesus, and you are saying, I will follow him, and I will follow him with the whole of my life, no matter the cost, which is why the apostles' early message was, repent and be baptized. It's not enough to just have a silent profession of faith that, oh yeah, I trust Jesus, but I'm not going to publicly identify with him. I'm not going to acknowledge him as Lord, which is why we view baptism as so significant. You are saying that I need to be cleansed and I need to be brought into this kingly and priestly people, and the only way I can do that is through identifying and entering union with the ultimate son, the ultimate son of God, the ultimate son of man, the ultimate human being, 
Because it's God the Son incarnate as a human being in Jesus Christ the Nazareth, of Nazareth, the righteous one, the righteous branch who will lead his people into the new creation and to no one alone. And then as you identify with Christ, he gives you that spirit so that you can walk in, in concrete righteousness in your life. And it's not only an individual reality. The same waters in which you are identifying with Christ, you are identifying with his people, with the local church. And it's not just an individual endeavor to go along in life saying, yeah, I I know I'm trusting Jesus and I know I need to grow in righteousness, but he's also given us a body of people around us that we help each other to pursue righteousness together. This is one of the reasons the local church is so necessary. There are no lone wolf Christians. There are Christians in community who need the help of one another. We need the help of one another. I need your help. You need my help. We need each other's help to grow in pursuing righteousness, dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit, trusting in the counted righteousness to us through Jesus' death alone. That is what it means to be part of the local church. We need to follow Jesus, not just once, but through all of our lives. Follow him, Jesus, the servant king who fulfills all righteousness for the new creation. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the righteous one. Lord, help us to marvel at that fact that you lived on this earth for 30 some odd years and lived a perfect, blameless pleasing life to the Father. We can't do that. We are wicked. We have wicked desires, and we don't desire righteousness naturally, and yet you are the Savior. You are the champion. You are the King who can lead us, who fulfills all righteousness, first by accounting righteousness to us before the Father. We thank you for that reality. We praise you that we are seen through the lens of Christ by the Father. We are your brothers and we are the Father's children. We thank you for that. And yet we thank you also that you have not just left us uh, to be accounted righteous, but not able to do anything that is righteous. No, you've given us your spirit to dwell in us so that we can live a righteous life. And Lord, we desire that. We desire that as individuals and as a congregation, would you help us, even this week, would you help us to see where we need to grow, and would you empower us, Holy Spirit, to do so, thought, word, and deed, and may you receive all honor and all glory. You are the great and awesome King. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.